This morning, we're going to talk about developing the habit of forgiveness, and we're going to look at the second part of Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 of the Lord's Prayer. There are two twin misery, misery twins that can come into our life, and that is guilt and resentment. Last week, we talked about the forgiveness, forgive us our sins. That's how God has provided the remedy of relieving the guilt of sin, not just for once and for all in Christ, but the ongoing application of the cross in our life of dealing with sins as believers. Forgive us our sins. One of them has to do... uh, uh, that when we feel guilty, that's when that's actions that we take, actions that we do in regards to other people. But when other people hurt you, when you hurt other people, you feel guilty. You should. The Holy Spirit should press on you some conviction. But when other people hurt you, the twin enemy is resentment. We begin to feel resentful of what. They've done. And the Lord's Prayer, as we looked at in the first week in our introduction, the Lord's Prayer is one of those statements and prayers that really, as you grow in understanding the depth of what Jesus has taught us, of how the depth of the Lord's Prayer covers every aspect of our life and every aspect of our spiritual growth. As I said last week, we looked at forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts, which is talking about forgiveness of our sins. And so today, as we're looking at, forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive those who have sinned against us and what it means to develop a habit of forgiveness. Look, the fact of the matter is, is you are going to be hurt by other people. Just the way life is. You've been hurt many times in the past. You're going to be hurt and disappointed in people in the future. Sometimes it's intentional and oftentimes it's unintentional. And as believers, and again, this is Jesus is teaching his disciples this prayer and how to utilize this prayer as a habit of communing and walking in relationship with the Lord. And if we don't learn how to release the resentment, the hurt, like last week we talked about the garbage piling up in your life. Remember that? You take out the garbage regularly, or it does what? It smells. It stinks. If you don't deal on a continual basis with the issues of guilt, last week we talked about forgive us our sins, but this week we talked about the sin that we battle in resentment of other people who have hurt us, offended us. And like the garbage, we've got to deal with it before it starts to stink. If you allow, if I allow resentment, grudges, anger, all that stuff to be built up in our life, then you know what? It just becomes... We're like, you know, some of those shows you've watched of hoarders where it just becomes astronomical to try to deal with the problem. God, in Christ, has provided a regular, if I could say it this way, remedy in our daily communing with God in the Lord's Prayer of how we keep the flow, how we keep the poison of resentment, anger, offense, and those things free from our life. You know, it's one thing to forgive people as a one-off. We, we're, usually that's not a problem, is it? It's the repeat offenders. It's the repeat offenders that we have trouble with, the people who keep hurting us. And then we think, God, how often should I forgive this person? I mean, Lord, be realistic. This is a repeat offender time and time again. 
Well, you know, the Apostle Peter had a question like that. He asked for Jesus. Do you remember? In Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter asked the Lord Jesus, How often, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Now, Peter, being Jewish, understood a traditional Jewish law that really gave the requirement that you should forgive somebody three times. And I guess the deal was that after three times, all bets are off, right? But Jewish law said you should at least forgive somebody three times. So Peter not only doubles it, he adds one seven times. Like, Lord, look how spiritual I am. Seven times. Surely you will agree that that's magnanimous, that that's generous. And I love Jesus, how he came back in verse 22. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. Don't do the math. That's not the point. First of all, if you're doing the math, you're not interested in forgiving. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Don't do the math. The point of Jesus is saying there is no limit. It's non-numerical. You keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving again and again. And we're going to talk this morning of what that means and also what it doesn't mean. And as we unpack that, I want to draw your attention to Matthew 18 as well, in verse 23, that Jesus tells a story to illustrate what he just said to Peter. And it's the story of the unforgiving servant. Verse 23, same chapter, Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and that his wife and children all that he had and that payments be made. Look, in those days, uh, you didn't pay your debts. They'd just come and take over your house, sell your wife, your kids, and put you in a debtor's prison where you would have to earn off your debt, not a very humane way. Some have calculated what kind of amount that is, but let's just say, for number's sake, as one suggested, $12 million this guy owed to his king. An impossible amount that anybody could pay. I mean, even if the servant could pay $100 a day, which he would not be able to do, it would take him over 300 years to pay off $12 million. Jesus wants you to see in this story an astronomical debt that, humanly speaking, would be impossible to repay. Verse 26, The servant therefore fell down before the king, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. I can't help but think of my mobster movies that I watch when Uncle Guido goes to collect the debt, right? And they just need a little more time, a little more time. And sometimes that's not always met with great receptivity. But he's just wanting a little more time. And the Bible says that the king felt sorry for him. Verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. And here's a great word. You ought to circle it in your Bibles. Released him. Released him. Set him free and forgave him the debt. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody write off a debt? And more importantly, why does it illustrate why we should in essence, forgive and let people off the hook, even people 
who have hurt us badly. People have wounded us. Why should we even do that? Well, I want to break it down in two main headings and give some application. Number one is let's talk about the motive for forgiving those who hurt me. What is the motive? Why should I forgive those who hurt me? What is the motive? And I want to suggest to you, and again, this is more of a topical message than we normally do. Those of you who are guests, we, been, we, I think we just we go through books of the Bible usually, but we're doing something a little different, and I appreciate your feedback on this. But we're just looking at this from a topical standpoint. Let me suggest three reasons for this of the motive. Number one, probably the reason, is because God forgives me. Kind of hard to get over that one, isn't it? How many times has God forgiven you? Well, we know that God has forgiven us once and for all time in Christ, but have you asked for the forgiveness of God since you've been a believer? I hope so. Forgiveness of the ongoing sin is as you're living out the application of the Christ-filled life and you're dealing with the ongoing sin in your life. It tells the story of the king represented uh, that Jesus uh, as our king uh, is represented by this human king and forgives this servant. He took pity on him. The king canceled his debt. The Bible tells us that Christ has canceled our debt, that everything that you have done wrong in your life, everything you will do wrong in your life, sin, Jesus took the rap. He paid the price. He paid your jail time. He paid your ticket. He took his off- your offense as if it were his offense. The Bible says that Jesus, who did not know sin, meaning he was born sinless, perfect, became sin for our sake. Romans 3.23, for all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin is a term in the Greek that speaks of missing the mark. It's an archery. Some of you like archery. And it's an archery term meaning to miss the mark. All of us have consistently missed the mark, the bullseye of perfection. We can't hit it. We have all missed the mark. We have all fallen short because of sin. And therefore, because of sin, being born in sin, the Bible tells us. We have an enormous debt, if you will. In fact, a debt so great, we can't deal with it ourselves. Let me ask you, if you were this servant in our story in Matthew 18, and you were forgiven a $12 million bill, how do you think you would feel? You'd be ready to party, wouldn't you? You'd be nice to everybody. You'd start tipping Waffle House 30, 50 bucks for coffee. I mean, you'd just be generous. You'd be so excited. Well, that's not exactly what this guy did. In fact, in the story, he reacts quite differently. He goes out after after having been forgiven such a great debt. He goes out to a guy that owed him some lunch money when they went to Panera's there in Jerusalem. Uh, And notice what he does, verse 28. But that servant, the same guy that was forgiven great, this great amount, <clears throat> went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, and that wasn't to prophesy over him. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, just like he did, and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Verse 30, And he would not. Say that. And he would not. He chose not to forgive. But what did he do? He went and threw him into prison, like he was, 
till he should pay the debt. Now, those who calculate these things, do you know how much a hundred denarii would have came up to in our modern money? About $17. $12,017,000. I've always wondered why this guy was so harsh. The Bible doesn't exactly explain it. But let me suggest to you a possibility that seems to fit. I wonder if the reason he acted so harshly and was so unforgiving was because maybe he didn't really believe that he himself had been forgiven. Maybe he didn't really believe that he was on the hook. Maybe he really thought this was some test of the king, and while he's out, he better hustle up every buck he can get because the king was pulling his leg. The king had other measures because nobody, nobody forgives a $12 million debt. He goes out and he starts trying to get his money from everybody he could think of. And maybe it was because he didn't really believe the king had forgiven him. Here's the point. When I feel unforgiven... I am unforgiving. Think about that. When I feel unforgiven, I am unforgiving. When I feel unforgiven, I am unforgiving. When I feel ungraced, I am not gracious. When I don't feel released from my mistakes and sins, I'm really not in the mood to release you from your sins and mistakes that you've done toward me. If I don't feel good about me, I certainly don't feel good about you. And I found that in my own life, in dealing with my own sins and other people and actions, and think with me, when you find somebody who's harsh, judgmental, critical, self-righteous, holds a standard of perfection that they themselves cannot even attain, and they're just demanding in every sense of the word, I think oftentimes it's because they're trying to navigate their own guilt. When I was kind of as a sidebar, I remember in my class in college and preaching that the professor had a winsome way of teaching things, and he said, be on guard against harsh, judgmental, ungracious preaching. Because one thing that oftentimes is the case is preachers who cannot handle the sin in their own life are hoisting a standard upon you, the congregation, when in reality they're fighting their own demons, if you will. I think that's often true. Not always. Sometimes doesn't have anything to do with that. Sometimes just conviction of the Spirit that's being done. But I have to watch my own life. And that's just in personal life. I remember many times God convicted me with my children that I was harsh on them. And the Lord reminded me, aren't you glad I'm not that harsh on you, son? Right? We've all been there, dads. You have somebody who's demanding damning of other people, putting down. I'm not saying, now don't, don't be misled in saying we're not to preach standards and make good judgments on the Word of God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you are operating in a harshness 
question and ask, is it because I really do not understand or experience or walking in the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has given me? And is that why I am so angry at this guy that didn't return my mower full of gas? Because it's amazing what will trigger anger. Maybe you are easily triggered by small things that are out of proportion to the situation. You ever known somebody like that? Yeah, you're looking at one. And I'm looking at a bunch of people here today. I'm going to knock those halos off your heads. Right? And we have to be on guard against that. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.32, Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as, just as, just as, God through Christ has forgiven you. I don't know if it's still a commercial, but I love the Motel 6 commercial. Tom Bodette says, we're going to leave the light on for you. Well, I'm glad God's light of forgiveness is always on. Amen? Notice the second motive is that not only has God forgiven me an impossible debt, but secondly, second motive is resentment, is self-torture. You're the one that's suffering. I'm the one that is suffering. We harbor such anger and resentment over people and situations. Here's a news flash. They ain't thinking about it. They're not losing sleep. Who is? Me. I'm the one dealing with that. I'm the one that is torturing myself. And I'm worrying about something that maybe happened a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. 20 years ago, when I was five. Now, I'm not belittling those things because many of us can recount situations as children that are very real and vivid. It doesn't mean we're resentful. It's just triggers and memories that were hurtful. Listen, the only way that that person can continue to hurt and do damage is if you hold on to that hurt. Job said in Job 5.2, Surely resentment destroys the fool, and jealousy kills the simple. Resentment is self-torture. Going back to Matthew 18, when the king hears about what this servant that he had released of this great debt, when he hears and it's reported back to him, he's livid. Verse 32, Matthew 18. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I have had pity on you? And the Bible says, verse 34, that his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. When we hold on to those resentments and hurts, it's not saying they aren't real. It's saying that when we hold on to them, Instead of exercising the release of forgiveness. And we'll talk about how to do that in a minute. And explain what I'm not saying. Then we are the ones that are in the torture chamber. Because we go to bed thinking about it. We wake up thinking about it. And if we see that person in Publix. Oh, our day is ruined. We can be watching the Waltons. Or whatever it is you watch. And something will trigger a memory. And it brings it back. 
just to remind you, it should be a reminder that I have not dealt with this. Now, again, I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to people who have been resourced, according to Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing already in Christ. You have everything you need with the Spirit dwelling in you to function and act as Jesus did in this area of forgiveness. Job 21, verse 23 and 25. The Good News translations say, Some people stay healthy till the day they die. They die happy and at ease. Their bodies well nourished. Verse 25, Others have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. I have been around a lot of older senior people as a pastor. And one of the saddest things is to be around an individual that's on the back end, who's on the, in the fourth quarter of life, and to live and go into their latter years and certainly go into eternity still carrying so much anger and resentment towards others. And the third motive, not only is that God forgives us, and I need to deal with the resentment of self-torture, but thirdly, another motive is I need forgiveness every day. I need forgiveness every day. I not only need to forgive, but I myself need forgiveness every day. Ask my wife. I need forgiveness every day. And she's not so perfect either, all right? Don't get a big... I don't want her getting a big head over there. Maybe once a month at most. The Bible says you need to be forgiving and you need to receive God's forgiveness. But here's the thing. Forgive us, it says in verse 12... I think the New Living Translation is what I used earlier. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive everybody else. Do you really want that? Meaning, in proportion to what you forgive is what you will be forgiven. Do I really want that measurement? Well, that's what the Lord says. That, I for, that God, I want you to forgive me as much as I forgive them. You see, forgiveness isn't just something we do two or three times a year. Forgiveness is, and it's built in, it's baked in to this Lord's Prayer as part of the lifestyle of the believer. It's part of the lifestyle. Developing the habit is the title of this message of forgiveness. And so forgiveness, I not only enjoy, listen to me, I not only enjoy forgiveness, but I employ forgiveness. It's one thing to say how wonderful it is to have your sins forgiven and to be carrying around the anger and resentment and grudges and offense of others that you refuse to forgive. Matthew 18, Jesus Concludes the story, verse 35, of how the king treats the servant is exactly the way that God will treat us. Verse 35, so, the point of this story, guys, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses or sins. Notice it says, from the heart. It's not an intellectual forgiveness. It's not just in theory, I've forgiven them. But it is when body, soul, spirit, your emotions, you have released them and forgiven them completely. A book that I've mentioned in the past and I recommend it, by R.T. Kendall called Total 
Forgiveness. Excellent book. And then one of the things that he says in there very, very early <clears throat> is that people... Now, he was a wonderful Christian pastor, large historic church in London. He's American, but he pastored Westminster Chapel in London where Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, great preachers of the past. And there were people in Christian ministry, other pastors, ministers that had uh, hurt him. And he, if he was asked, even when he would pray, have you forgiven them? He would quickly say yes. But as he began to dive deep into this forgiveness, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he had not really forgiven some of these people. And as he allowed the Holy Spirit, we talked about forgiving our sins last week, the deep work of the Spirit and dealing with those habits, those sins of the heart that we tailor make to comfort our sins. When we allow the Holy Spirit to deal with those things, he said then and only then could he find the release of the Holy Spirit in being totally forgiving of these individuals that had hurt him. And he said the real practical way that he knew this was when he could begin to pray blessing on their life. When he not only began to pray blessing in their life, on their life, he could actually take action to tangibly do something that would bless them in their life. That's when you experience total forgiveness is that when you can truly before the Lord not only pray, God, I want you to bless them, I want you to prosper them in knowing you. And you know what the Lord says? The Lord says, I do too. In fact, Tim, why don't you take that $50 bill that was sent to you or given to you by this person, and why don't you anonymously get it into their hands? Well, Lord, I wasn't talking about me. You know, do maybe some of that manna thing that you do. I wasn't talking about me doing it. But isn't that the way the Lord works? And you know what? And I just, I wish I was 100%, and I'm not, so don't. But there's an amazing freedom when you bless your quote-unquote enemy. There's an amazing freedom that comes. All right, that's the motive. Look at the second part of this. Let's talk about how do I do this? What's the method for forgiving those who hurt me? Three things, very practical. Number one, I leave it to God. I leave it to God. I get it out of my hands. That's saying, okay, God, I'm not going to try to get even. I'm not going to try to let, I'm going to, I'm going to let you settle it. I'm going to let you handle this. I'm going to let you do whatever you need to do. I relinquish my right to get even. I relinquish my right to set it straight, set them straight. I'm going to leave it to you. I'm going to put it in your sovereign, capable Hands, knowing, as Genesis 18.25 says, shall not the judge of all the earth always do right. Do you realize whatever God does is right? It isn't if you agree with it. Do you realize that whatever God does is right? Romans 12.19, Paul says, Dear friends, never Take revenge. Leave that. Leave it to the righteous anger of God. Listen, if somebody is hurt, parents, now let's be real, okay? I'll, I'll edit out any sounds you make so it's not archived on the internet or anything. When somebody hurts your child, 
I'm talking about one of their little playmates. And they hurt one of your kids? Yeah, you know what I'm, where I'm going with that, right? Listen, do you not think how many times Jesus says, how much more does your heavenly Father? Do you think if someone, I'm not talking about little petty inner church squabbles, like those two women in Philippians. I'm not about when somebody does harm to one of God's children. Do you not think your heavenly Father sees it and knows how to deal with it and handle it? So he says, dear friends, never take refuge. Leave it. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take refuge and I will pay them back. I'd rather put it in God's hands knowing that God is much better able to settle the score than me. Now let me just, because this is a good place to say it, let me make sure you understand what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean instant restoration or trust. Forgiveness is instant. Forgiveness. I forgive you. Trust is built over time. You see the difference? I forgive you instantly before the Lord. I release you. But the trust, that will take time to rebuild. Forgiveness is based on grace. Rebuilding trust, if I could say it this way, is built on works. What was it Reagan that said about the Russians, about their wanting to make agreements on nuclear arms? Trust but verify. Remember that? Meaning, we're not just going to go into a blind naivete. If somebody has hurt you and violated trust, that isn't just rebuilt the moment you say, I forgive you. You may genuinely forgive them, but you may not let them use the car again for a while. You may not let them have access to your savings account again. In other words, trust takes time. Forgiveness is an instant. And there's a lot of people that think, I don't want to forgive that person because I don't want to go back to the hell that I had to deal with. Nobody's saying that. Forgiveness is a different issue. Forgiveness and restoration of a relationship are two completely different things. Listen, there are some situations that you and I will forgive, truly forgive before the Lord, but that relationship will no longer be mendable. Do you hear what I'm saying? Some situations, some situations, use the, the toothpaste, can't go back in the tube. It is what it is. You'll be in heaven, you'll have new bodies, you'll enjoy the blessings of eternity, but the relationship, the trust factor has been broken. And some marriages are like that. Just being real, they are. Some marriages are irretrievably broken. Some business arrangements are irretrievably broken. Some friendships are broken. It doesn't mean you don't pray for that person you don't think kindly of that person. You don't even bless that person. But that relationship can't be restored because the breach was too great. But that has nothing to do with forgiveness. Restoration of a relationship takes repentance, sometimes restitution, rebuilding. It's not the same thing. But secondly, here's another way that we do this. Is secondly, I heal the hurt with grace, God's grace. Not just being gracious, but God's grace. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Look after each other so that none 
of you fails to receive the grace of God. Well, if it says, look out for each other, so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God, then that means there's a potential of me failing to receive the grace of God. Right? It's a warning. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God and watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. I've known families where the root of bitterness has just been woven into that ancestral line for years. And I'm not talking about the Hatfield McCoys, all right? I mean, but there's some realism. Some people don't even know why they're angry at so-and-so, this part of the family, that part of the family. And, and bitterness, bitterness. Some of you had mothers and fathers that were just bitter, angry people. And that is rubbed off on you. And you have a tendency to be bitter and angry and have a poison in which you relate to people that have hurt you. Look, life is unfair. Would you agree with that? God's Word never says, you come to Jesus, life's going to be fair. Maybe in the maps, but it doesn't say that in the the real part, right? No, it doesn't say that anywhere. Life is unfair. Why? Because we live in a broken world. Sin has infected. This is not heaven. This is the earth. What do we pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is perfection. On earth, not so much. Life is unfair. And if you don't get the grace of God and walking in the grace of God and letting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about gifts. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday, we've been talking about this. Don't worry about gifts. Worry about the fruit. The fruit will produce the gifts. The fruit's not optional. You using your gift is optional. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. You can't write a rule book on how to have joy. It's a product of the transforming work of the Spirit in your life. The grace of God. Forgiveness is not always fair. How do I know that? Look to the cross. Was that fair? Was that a fair deal? That the one who knew no sin would bear the sin of the guilty? Is that fair? No. Sometimes forgiveness is not fair. You may not get your day in court with that situation. You may go to your grave and to your cognitive ability of life, it was never resolved. But guess what? What did you do? You gave it to the Lord. You exercised grace. And you're good. Sometimes things don't get always wrapped up in a package and dealt with the way we think they should be. That's not the point. We leave it to God. We exercise grace, walk in the grace of God, not just talk about it. You see, 1 Peter 2.24, Christ carried our sins in His body on the cross so that we should stop living for sin and start living for what is right. And we are healed because of His wounds. By His stripes, we are healed. Look, forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. It costs Jesus, his life for you and me. Martin Luther King said freedom is a costly thing. Well, spiritual freedom is even more costly because Jesus gave his life. 
Ephesians 2.8. For by grace. What is grace? It's the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. The only thing you brought to Christ when you came to Him that first time was your sin. That's all you brought. You had nothing to offer. You owed $12 million debt. The king didn't have anything fair. No. The king forgave you. The king forgave me. Matthew 18. Because the king chose to do so. Why did God save any of us? Because he chose to do so. The bigger question is, when you understand sin, why did God choose to save any of us? You ever thought about that? I think the more we grow and understand our debt and our sin and the forgiveness. So by grace we are saved. Then he says in verse 10, that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared beforehand that we should <clears throat> that we should walk in them. You know what a you know what a bell tower is? You've seen pictures of it or you know what a bell tower, a tower with the big bell, the liberty bell or whatever it is, the liberty the bell. Oftentimes in churches and more places now in Europe and other places a big bell that would be rang and sometimes that would be the way of announcing events to the township and the community. Think with me about this. The bell is hung up high and they have a rope attached to them. To ring the bell, the rope has to be pulled down a few times. And there is a constant pulling and a constant ringing of the bell. Now, after the pulling is over, and the person pulling on the rope lets go, what will the bell keep doing? It'll keep swinging, and it'll keep making noise, right? The bell does not stop swinging just because the rope is not being pulled anymore. It will swing for a while before it slows down and eventually stops. You say, well, that's interesting, Pastor. Thanks for that little tip. <laughs> Likewise, forgiveness is the act of letting the bell rope go. It means that you choose to no longer hold the rope. A lack of forgiveness is when you are constantly pulling the rope. Each ring of the bell reminds us every time of the wrong, of the hurt, of the pain inflicted on by that person. Our constant pulling of the rope keeps the wrongdoings on our minds. Now, if we choose to let go by a decision of the will, our emotions, what? We've said we forgive them, but our emotions, we still hear, quote-unquote, we still hear the bell. We still feel it. But if you let the rope go, and here's the key, leave it alone, sooner or later, what will happen? The bell will slow down, and the clanging sound of unforgiveness will be no more. Don't let the fact of the feelings of the pain get in the way of your forgiveness. You cannot be responsible for anybody else but you. You're responsible for not pulling the rope. And if you don't pull the rope, you won't hear the bell. Some of you love pulling the rope. You've created such joy out of yanking that rope you can't wait to get home, go by Zaxby's, get home, and start pulling that rope. Now, I'm being silly, but it's because you have nurtured the sin and you have developed such comfort in knowing that if I'm going to be miserable, I want them to be miserable. But as I said, they're probably not. They don't have any idea. And if they did, they probably could care less. 
You're the one that's got loss of hearing because of that stupid bell. God wants you to release and let go of the rope. I leave it to God. I heal it with grace. And in one sense, if I could say it this way, I need to nail it to the cross. Why do I need to nail it to the cross? Because that's where the power is. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old life died with Christ on the cross so that our sinful selves, our sinful selves would have no power over us and we would not be slaves to sin. Colossians 2.14 says that Christ canceled the debt which listed all the rules we failed to follow. He took away the record with its rules and did what? He nailed it to the cross. By the same measure that you are forgiven, the same measure you forgive. He who is forgiven little forgives what? Little. Thimble measurement, thimble grace. I want buckets of grace, right? I need buckets of grace. Listen, I am in no way minimizing the real hurts. A message like this can oversimplify things. That's just all the time we have here in a general statement. I'm in no way minimizing hurts that are deep wounds of the soul, rejection, abandonment, sexual and emotional abuse, I'm in no way saying that those is the same way you forgive the guy that broke your mower. I'm not saying that's the same. Infinitely different. But here's what I am saying. I believe this to my very core. And as a believer, you have to believe this. That there is nothing, nothing impossible that God cannot heal your hurt from whatever it is. There is nothing. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all? Won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Then he says in verse 34, Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading or interceding for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that somebody has done something so grievous that they will separate you from the love of Christ? No, he says, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? Paul says no, verse 37. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now look at this. For I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing, nada, can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You've got to be like Paul, where he says, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that that's true. <clears throat> Some of you know the name Corey Ten Boom, and I've read this testimony of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom, her family during, it was, uh, I believe, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, um, 
And her family, her dad was a, had a watchmaking business, but in World War II, when the Nazis came in and took control of that area, uh, that they helped hide Jews in their home, uh, in their attic, in different places. And eventually, the Nazis discovered what they were doing, and they were caught, and their family was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and later, Billy Graham organization made it into a movie, and I think they've done a new one, but I, but I like this one, the older one. I'm sure you can get it in all the different places you get your movies. But if you haven't watched it, it's a great story of God's faithfulness and how she found and shared the hope of God while uh, imprisoned in a concentration camp. And I remember, Lisa, every time I mention that story, their mom, uh, Lisa's mother, Mary Lucas, who went to be with the Lord recently, Mary was born in a concentration camp. And so she always connected, obviously, with that story. I used to read it, but I have a short little video clip that they're going to show, so maybe they can uh, get ready for that. Now, make sure the audio's up. There are some, it's just a few minutes. There's, a, there's subtitles because she has a, a strong accent, but I think you'll be able to pick up on what she's saying. So if they're ready to show that, go ahead and... It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man. That was one of the most cruel officers, guards, in the concentration, in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian, I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness and Fräulein Tambom wants him here forgiven will you forgive me and I could not I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him but when I saw when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. I, I knew, oh, I'm not ready for Jesus coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who has given to me and thank you Father that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness that same moment I was free and I could say brother give me your hand and I shook hands with him and it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms you never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. Isn't that powerful? I like what she said, and this is what will end. I can't. But he can. I can't do anything. But through Christ, who gives me strength. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that works in us. I can't, but he can. Amen? Let's pray.